On this episode, I'm in the room with author, podcaster, speaker, and professor, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 86. I am your host, Ryan Hughley. For those of you joining me for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the author of Eight Hours or Less, writing faithful sermons faster. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Preston Sprinkle about his new book, Embodied, Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say. Preston has written over a dozen books, he hosts a great podcast called Theology in the Raw, and is a widely sought-after thinker and teacher specifically about the intersection of faith and sexuality. Now, sexuality in general, the transgender experience in particular, are such thorny topics, and Preston does a better job than anyone else I've ever heard speaking to these experiences in a way that is both deeply empathetic while at the same time trying to allow the scriptures to speak as well. Unfortunately, I had an audio issue on my end, so while Preston sounds great, I sound like I am speaking through a tin can. But thankfully, Preston brings so much insight to the table, he makes up for my lousy audio issues. All that said, it was a tremendous gift to be able to have this conversation, and I think it's going to both encourage and help you as well. So why don't you get comfortable and come on in the room for my conversation with Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Yeah, so uh, born and raised in California, grew up in uh, Fresno, Central Valley, California. They they call okay. it, we called it the armpit. Yeah. Um, and but went to college in San Diego and then uh, L.A. area, and that's okay. At the age of nineteen, is, is in San Diego is really where I um, my faith uh, became my own and became okay. robust and haven't turned back since. Uh, so yeah. that was, uh, yeah, 19, I'm 45 now. Um, married with, uh, I've got four, four kids, three teenage daughters and an 11 year old son. Been in Boise, Oof. Idaho now for, we've lived in various places, Scotland, uh, Ohio, Southern California. And now we've been in Boise, Idaho for about six and a half years. Okay. So did um, you grow up in a Christian home? Yeah. You know, my, my, uh, parents are divorced. So I was okay. 10 years old. Yep. And my, uh, my mom is a believer, a uh, very solid believer. My dad, my dad was not. Okay. Um, so it was kind of, yeah, kind of, no, I mean a Christian home, but like, I didn't grow up in going to youth group really. I never really been yeah. in a youth group and would go to church, you know, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, not the typical experience of, you know, kids growing up and just being, you know, heavily involved At church in all the time. Yeah. 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 So what were the factors around 19 then that led to you kind of taking those steps to make faith your own? It was a hypocrisy. It was a, you know, I always said I was a Christian, Mm -hmm. never would have mentally said I wasn't, but wasn't living like it. Um, You know, it was partying and it did, I don't know, the typical story you all hear, you know, but I, you know, at 19, it's kind of like, you know, you're partying, partying and, and just do, you know, after a while there, you're kind of like, I'm either going to end up like, you know, the creepy guy, Matthew McConaughey on Days and Confused, yeah, you know, where you, yeah. you keep getting older and the girls stay the same, you know? That's right. You, you kind of look down and you're like, okay, but where does this end? You know, like where, uh-huh. what's life all about? How do I want to live my life? And, and that's when it was actually a Christian a teammate. I was playing baseball and a teammate, the only other Christian on the team just kind of 
passing said, you know, you call yourself a Christian, but you don't act like it, you know, like yeah. you should either do one or the other. And I was like, man, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I want to, I want to jump all in. So yeah, it was it never, you know, haven't looked back since. Okay. And then was it pr- shortly thereafter that you decided that you wanted to be a professor and a writer or author? How did, how did your, the more professional end of your writing ministry and teaching, how did that come to take shape? So I hated to study, hated to yeah. read. Uh, didn't read a book until I was like 17 years old, I think. And just, okay. I was an athlete and um, hated it. <laughs> hated studying. And when I became a Christian, almost overnight, I fell in love with studying the Bible. And um, I rarely use the term like miracle or this was uh-huh. clearly God. Not that God doesn't work, obviously, but um, I, I can say this. This was a, a radical act of God because there was no, there's, there was nothing in me that ever would have wanted to sit down and read the Bible of all things. Yeah. And almost overnight, I couldn't stop. I'd spend eight hours in my closet with a flashlight reading the Bible. And that's all I wanted to do. And so, yeah, I, I said, man, I just want to, then I found out you can actually get a degree in Bible. Like I didn't know that was <laughs> yeah. a thing. I was like, what? Totally. I, can, I can actually get tested on studying the Bible to me. I was like, sign me up. So I yeah. ended up doing an undergrad master's degree and, and PhD in, in Bible. And I could have kept going. I, I would have done another doctorate if my wife would have let me and if it actually paid money. <laughs> and, and so where have been of all the places that you've taught and lived, where, where's been like some of the highlights for you? So I did my, my doctor, my doctorate at Aberdeen university in Scotland. So at Aberdeen, yeah, Aberdeen university founded 1490, two years wow. before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And, and my, um, it used to be an old training school for monks because that back then, yeah, monks would go get an education. They would usually get like a medical degree and then a theology degree. So my office at Aberdeen university was in a building called the old brewery, because back then the monks would brew their own beer. And, right. you know, um, and that's a practice. Uh, I feel like we should bring back to <laughs> regular vocational ministry. Well, you know, I'm in Boise, <laughs> Idaho and we're not too far off, but uh, that's true. So, um, that for various reasons, I think my time in Scotland was formative. I, I was raised in a really conservative background. Um, went, to, I mean, the, my undergrad and master's degrees were from John MacArthur seminary, master's seminary, master's. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's usually the response I get, but yeah. um, And not a lot, not a lot of beer drinking going on there. I don't Not a lot of beer drinking. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah. And, and, you know, they, they taught me to love the word of God. They taught me to be committed to the original languages. Um, They taught me some level of spiritual discipline. So I I don't, it was part of my journey, part of my experience, you know, theologically, it was pretty narrow. And so going to Scotland, I was able to rub shoulders with, you know, 25 different evangelical PhD students from 24 different denominations. And all of them were passionate about the gospel, contrary to kind of what I had assumed, you know, that there was yeah. kind of one, right. one way of doing things and everybody else is on a slippery slope. And I found out that that's not only not true, but just kind of a toxic perspective to have on, on the church. And so, um, yeah, I fell, I mean, I just, um, came, kind of fell into my own kind of rhythm of understanding the text and going with the text leads and questioning certain things I grew up with and other things were reconfirmed and just yeah. became super committed to, I'm going to go with the text leads. And um, uh-huh. if that leads me away from previously held convictions and so be it, you know, mm-hmm. what was that? Was that difficult 
that, that, that transition that you went through of broadening, being less narrow, because it, it can be a very disorienting experience to go from, because there's also the relational component of like, there's all these people that you've been a part of this tribe for so long. And, the, and especially the more narrow the tribe, it doesn't take very much to be looked at as, I mean, a heretic for all yeah. intents and purposes. Yeah. So what, what was that difficult for you emotionally going through that? Or were you pretty just like, it doesn't matter, come what may, whatever the text says, uh, I'm, was, I'm good to go. I kind of qu- like throughout seminary, I, I never drank the punch like in huge mm-hmm. gulps, but I was, sip- mm-hmm. I was sipping it, you know, and I was a yeah. young Christian. I didn't only a few years in my faith and, you know, um, but I began to read a little bit outside of my reading list. And it was like, huh, well, this is interesting. And well, why is this wrong again? And how come yeah. we're not reading what this person actually says? We're just saying we disagree, but we're not, you know, I want to read what he actually says. And so I would say I kind of quietly began to expand my horizons a, a bit, but again, I, look, what I don't like is when people deconstruct and then they, their whole posture is kind of like anti everything they grew up with, you know? So it's like, it's just not a firm foundation to be anti-conservative, you know, and whatever the conservative church is doing or saying, you're just the opposite. It's like, that's just, that's just uninteresting to me. So I, I, um, I, I feel like I deconstructed and reconstructed fairly well. I feel like I did it in a, in a healthy way. I, you know, I never, um, I, I took the meat and spit out the bones and, um, yeah, I really saw, you know, some of my most conservative professors who we, we may not line up on every theological point anymore, but they still pray like three hours a day and they've given yeah. 20% of missions their entire life. And it's like some of the people who deconstruct and reconstruct and I think in less healthy ways, they kind of lose some of the good of their conservative, conservative upbringing, you know, and yeah. there, there is good. And so, um, yeah, but I, you know, the thing is, is like <laughs> the one thing that never changed is I, was radically committed to the centrality of the scriptures in, in the life yep. of the believer. Well, centrality of God through scriptures. Yeah. Through scriptures, but I'm, I'm as, as zealous for biblical authority as I ever have been. Um, yeah. And, but that's, yeah, that may have led me to a different kind of approach to evangelicalism than some other more conservative traditions. <clears throat> what, what advice would you give? It seems I'm, I'm interacting with more and more people that are in somewhere in the process of deconstruction, reconstruction. Uh, I don't, I, I think, I wonder if COVID and a contentious election and everything we're experiencing socially and culturally right now feels like very fire hose-ish. It's a lot for people. Evangelicalism sort of feels like it's coming apart at the seams in some ways. So I think a lot of people are, are experiencing for a variety of reasons they're experiencing some version of this. So as mm-hmm. someone who feels like they walked through that in a healthy manner, I know that this is kind of off the top of your head, but any advice on some bullet points on what, what does it look like to walk through this process in a way that's not purely reactionary to everything negative you've experienced? That man. I, yeah. Um, great you question. should write that book next. I know. Right. Well, I, I was, <laughs> as you're talking, I was going to recommend two books by friends of mine. <clears throat> okay. Um, and, and they're going to kill me. I hope that they, they won't listen to this because I'm blanking on both of the book titles. Um, oh, a, uh, I think it's After Doubt by uh, A.J. Swoboda. If you just Google A.J. Swoboda. Okay. He, he's he's a, a professor. He's been a pastor for a number of years. He, he, he is like the most perfect mentor to somebody who is deconstructed and reconstructed in healthy ways. He's very raw, very honest. Okay. Um, and he's in, he's in kind of the Portland area. 
understands progressive culture, progressive Christianity. And he very much could easily have gone hyper progressive, but yeah, I think he's got a very solid, solid, honest approach to Christianity that maintains, I think, a healthy posture. And also another good friend of mine, lesser known, AJ is fairly well known in, in some circles, but uh, Tony Scarcello, Tony Scarcello is, okay. wrote a beautiful book on deconstructed, deconstructing, reconstructing. Tony's gay, uh, married to a woman, happily married to a woman, um, could have easily have gone very progressive, but actually has a very moderate like balanced view of christianity now very solid very humble his book is beautiful um and i think it rides that tension right of like mm-hmm. being able to healthily health healthily in a healthy way mm-hmm. question some of these unhelpful really unbiblical and ungospel like assumptions about jesus and the scriptures um and yet also not I don't know, like, like, yeah, just deconstructing and reconstructing in a healthy way. I, I, I think, yeah. you know, on that note, I would say if you're in that process and you want to do it in a healthy way, find a good godly mentor. <laughs> That's a good word. Yeah. Somebody who's, and by godly, I mean, somebody who's, who's following Jesus. Look, I don't care that yeah. on their theology is not going to be as significant for me, but somebody who is humble, who's wise, who's following Jesus, who's living this stuff out um, to be able to speak into your life. You know, um, I think that'd be the, probably the most important thing is because the people that I see that don't reconstruct in a healthy way, they either have no mentor or all their mentors are their friends who are also deconstructing and reconstructing, <laughs> right. you know, and, and look, I, I don't know. I get it. Like I've, I've seen some of the, the toxic things in some circles of conservative Christianity. I get it. I, I mm-hmm. get the kind of racism, the addiction, the wealth, the hypocrisy, the, inability to treat the marginalized and in, in the way that jesus would I, I i i we can go on and on so i i understand some of the the politics my word the kind of yeah you know um sanitizing and i idolizing certain political um viewpoints like i understand how that can be really frustrating so um yeah it's tough man i yeah maybe yeah <laughs> Well, you you know, one of the topics that you write about most frequently, you're most well known for is all all things pertaining to sexuality. And so I'm just curious how, why in the world would you choose (laughs) to make, that's like the thorny, I feel like, especially right now, it's got to be one of the most thorny topics that someone could wade into. And so what, what is it? What are the factors that would, that, I mean, I know pastors that don't even want to talk about this. And so you've really chosen to make this very front and center in your writing and thinking and teaching. And so how did that come to be for you? Yeah, it's a good question. I get that. Uh, yeah. That question a lot. And the short answer is I, you know, I kind of just fell into it originally. I, many years ago, I well, so maybe eight years ago, I decided to write a book on what the Bible says about homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And um, just because I could see a lot, a lot of my students were asking questions about it. And I realized I didn't know what, the Bible really actually said kind of one of those things. Like I knew how to grow up really yeah. believing, but I didn't own this belief for myself. And so I started a journey down the academic road of understanding all the arguments on both sides. And, uh, but early on, I, I started to get to know a lot of gay and lesbian people and just to hear their stories. And I, the most common response I got was, you know, I've never met a Christian that was kind to me or hmm. yeah, I grew up in the church, but I was mocked and made fun of. And, um, I mean, and on and on, I mean, just really horrific experiences, Yeah, like really just mind blowing some of them. And 
I'm like, man, I <laughs> look, e- even if we believe that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman, like I do hold that view. I think it's clear in scripture, but there's no excuse for not even being kind to a whole group of people that have had bad experiences in the church. So yeah. I began to, I don't know. I just saw a need for, um, both holding true to what the scriptures say when it, even when it's unpopular, um, thought like humbly and thoughtfully thinking through all the counter arguments, like truly mm-hmm. considering, like genuinely considering the counter arguments to the traditional sexual ethic. And if these arguments hold water, then I'll, I'll, then it's true. Right. I mean, if it's true, yeah. it's true. So, yeah. um, I think there's a, such a need to have that kind of like honest posture with, with the biblical and theological evidence, but then also, um, being excessively kind to people that, that, um, that haven't experienced that from the church. And I realized that one, there's not, there wasn't a lot of people doing that. And, and yep. two, there was a great hunger for it. Like, um, I mean, I, when I wrote my book, people to be loved back in, it came out in 2015, like loads of pastors were like, Hey, can you come help us Yeah, do that <laughs> in our yeah, church context? Yeah. And so there was a huge, like a lot of people were hungering for, and you know, following the truth and also embodying the grace of Jesus. And yeah, and I really, I kind of realized like a couple of years in that when it comes to sexuality and gender, we haven't done that too well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, why do you, why do you think it is so hard to be kind for so many Christians? I mean, it, I mean, that sounds like such a dumb question because it's such a low bar. Like why is it so hard just for us to be humanely kind to people that mm-hmm. are different? Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to vilify an experience or a person that seems so distant from you. You know, if mm-hmm. it's some something that, you know, it's one thing, well, there, any kind of like socially unacceptable sin is, is yeah. how same sex desire has been. And because it's been social, I'm, I'm using quotes here, socially unacceptable. Yep. Yep in a church context, it's just easy to vilify it, to keep it at arm's length, to keep it distant. And also, I mean, so much of um, American culture, but also church culture through most of the 20th century. Yeah. We we've made this the kind of scarlet letter. Yeah. Um, I'll say sin. Cause I do believe same sex sexual relationships are, are, are sin, but um, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of fear, especially if you re- if you consider this conversation through a political lens, you know, there's just so much mm-hmm. fear on both sides. And so if that's your primary, um, if you're pr- if the primary voice in your life is some news outlet, they're going to, they're going to use this conversation to stoke fear in you. And, and then you're going to take that to the church and yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's complicated. You know, like where did that all yeah. come from? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's complex. I mean, and, and now it's almost like in some circles, in some more progressive areas, it's almost the the opposite. You know, now there's a lot of fear on the other side to say anything that could come off as possibly unloving or, you know, bigoted right. or whatever. Um, which, right. Yeah, that adds a whole new piece to the discussion. But I know this is a pretty broad question, but like, what, what do you think are some of the most, you mentioned fear or vilifying or... Mm-hmm. But like, what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions that you see within the Christian church toward the LGBTQ community in general? One would be that if you're LGBT, that means you're 
non-Christian, anti-Christian, have no kind of faith identity. But um, there was a survey done a few years ago on the religious background of LGBT people and mm-hmm. surveyed over 1,700 LGBT people from you know, all around the country, from every, every state. Really, really thorough study. And it found out that it discovered that 83% of LGBT people were raised in the church. 83%. I read, I read that on your blog. That was yeah. mind blowing to me. Oh, and over 50% ended up leaving after 18. And, and only yep. of, the, of the 50% that left, only 3% said they left primarily for the church's theological views on marriage and sexuality, meaning an overwhelming majority of them left because they just had a really, really bad, unloving, sometimes really shame filled experience in the Christian church. And yeah. um, in my more provocative moments, I want to, <laughs> sometimes I say, if I'm feeling edgy enough to say it's the conservative evangelical church that has almost single-handedly created the yeah. quote unquote LGBT community that you are so, that you think is so, after your rights and trying to change policy yeah. and laws and stuff. And maybe some that's true, but if you look at the roots of that, then it's like, golly, like we need to change our church culture, not our theology, yeah. but change our culture. Yeah. And that's the only way in which we're going to gain some kind of hearing, you know, like yeah, <laughs> nobody's going to want to hear our truth until they feel our love. And in this conversation, we haven't, we haven't embodied the love of Jesus as, as we are. So we're, we're getting, I think we're getting better. And I think yeah. the growing number of churches are, really pressing into this but historically it's just we've we've done a really poor job with this conversation i think your voice is obviously at at the forefront of helping us get better at that and 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 i've noticed that most often when christians write and teach about sexuality they do so as an issue or an idea Mm -hmm. and one of the things that's unique about you is you write about all of this through the lens of real people oftentimes experiencing very real pain in the midst of wrestling with this. And so I was just curious about you in particular. Is that something that that comes naturally to you? Is that something that you have learned to cultivate? You know, I, I think it would be, I think it's an important question to ask because so few people seem to be doing it well and taking such an intentional bent toward it. And so I just wonder why you do that. Yeah. Um, I, no, I don't think it comes natural. I think it'd be easy for me to i'm in my basement right yeah right now uh-huh. you can see and um it'd be easy for me to sit in here with all my books and just figure out issues and solve this and win that argument and debate this and you know like that 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 comes more naturally to me even though i wasn't raised an academic i very much fell in love with academics and just that yeah. whole um journey um but I, it really was through my early kind of work in, in the sexuality conversation where I, you know, I, I didn't set out to like become good friends with LGBT people. I just want to listen to their stories. But through mm-hmm. that, a lot of them became good friends. So now, um, yeah, it, it really is like anybody, even if you're more, even if you're more like um, intellectually wired, you would still like, stand up for your friends, you know? So now it, it it really is that, you know, when I hear people talk or whatever, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like you have no idea how hurtful what you're saying is towards really some really beautiful people who are truly trying to follow Jesus, you know? And um, so, yeah, now, now it has really become 
it's become personal in a sense, like not sure. In the sense yeah, that's that good. I, this is my experience, but so many dear friends have, I mean, so many friends have just had like ongoing battles with shame. I, I, mm-hmm. a, a good friend of mine who's been a pastor in the conservative church for 30 years, um, uh, his secretly struggled with same sex attraction. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, this guy's faithful. He's been a faithful pastor, ha- doesn't act on it. You know, it's not like he's out sleeping around with the guys or whatever. He's very yeah. conservative theologically, even politically, mm-hmm. like voted for Trump, you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, but there's not a, he says there's not a day that goes by where he doesn't think God is disgusted at him. Hmm. Not a day that goes by. He doubts his salvation sometimes, a lot of times actually, just because it's been so pounded into him that he is a disgusting human being and this world would be better without him is a Mm -hmm. message that he can't, like it's so seeped down into the fabric of his bones and, you know, to see him just love people, be patient, to serve, he's done nothing but poured his life out into serving others. And it's just sad that he has to live with this crippling shame, but that that's so common (laughs) among the 83% that were raised in the church. And it's like, man, we, we need to wake up to some of the unintentional damage we've done just by flippant comments, jokes, Mm -hmm. or or just our silence. I mean, when we say, Oh, I'm not going to talk about this. We're, we're, we end up communicating that you, you, you know, person who has this experience isn't worth talking about, you know, and that's, that's hurtful too. Yeah. Uh, it, it would be a great if we could somehow develop a rule where you don't get to write and teach about things that you don't have faces attached to, because <laughs> it does right. just seem you, it, it's just impossible that your tone at very least yeah. is not impacted by that. Um, and so you do that on a, on what is right now a very, another very thorny topic for many Christians and, and mm-hmm. what to do with it and how to think about it. Your new book is called Embodied transgender identities, the church, and what the Bible has to say. Uh, so I know this is a super complicated conversation to have. I feel like even in getting ready, I was like, we're going to barely scratch the surface of this. So that's the great thing about your book. Um, so let's just, just talk to me about the term transgender. Um, I don't, I don't know that, uh, everyone has a really clear working understanding of when they hear that word, they know exactly what that means. So what does it mean? What does it involve? What all does it include? Yeah, that's, that's a good starting point. And sometimes people don't start there. They think they know what it means. But uh-huh. um, the number one thing Christians need to understand in, in the trans conversation is that trans or transgender can mean any number of different things to different people. Um, there's okay. so many different experiences uh, among people that identify as trans. And that's true for people that identify as anything, right? I mean, gay people, there's diversity, but um, straight people, there's diversity, but yeah, there's so many different kind of, um, ideological or even theological assumptions that might even go into somebody who identifies as trans. So for instance, you can have somebody that says they're transgender and they might truly believe they were born in the wrong body as the saying goes, you know, um, a, a friend of mine is male, biologically male, but says he is a woman, not wants to be a woman, not dresses like a woman, but is like, ontologically like i believe i am a woman that's that's a strong kind of use of the term trans another friend of mine female uh believes she's female um but experienced sold out believer in jesus but but experiences 
gender dysphoria, this discomfort with her biological sex. And so she, she actually says she's trans as a synonym for not kind of the depth of who she is, but the, this experience she has with, with gender dysphoria. Okay. And then there's all kinds of, there's so many variations in, in between and gender dysphoria is confusing, you know, and, and there's some people that identify as trans that don't even have dysphoria. It's been so political, politicized that there's debates about whether you even need gender dysphoria to truly be trans, you know? So mm-hmm. what I tell people is if, if, you know, if you, if you've met somebody that says they're trans, all you know about that person is that they just told you they're trans, you know, nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's important to understand that. And I have a whole chapter kind of laying out the um, various experiences within the okay. trans umbrella. So that, that'd be a good starting point to understand the diversity there. Okay. Well, before we dive a little bit deeper into the subject of the book in particular, what are, what are a couple other maybe important terms or realities that you feel like the church really needs to get more familiar with to be effective in this conversation about mm-hmm. sexuality and gender in general? So the biggest Oh yeah. So, I mean, I already kind of said the biggest thing is understand the diversity of trans, but sure. in terms of terminology, um, and this is something I see few people understand on a consistent basis is the the way that the terms sex and gender are used. Um, mm-hmm. And I see really smart people mix these up all the time. So up until the early 1970s, sex and gender were basically used as synonyms. Okay. Yeah. You're male or female. That's your sex. Yep. That's your gender. And even today, in a lot of policies and stuff, they'll still use sex and gender synonymously. Um, but especially in the trans conversation, uh, sex and gender are used differently. So, uh, sex is pretty straightforward. Um, you know, mm-hmm. humans, the human species, is sexual. We are we're a sexually dimorphic species, meaning uh-huh. we reproduce when a male impregnates a female and these are, we have different structures of reproduction. And um, that's, that's just a biological fact. Like the earth right. is round. Um, right. The sky in Montana is blue and, <laughs> yep. and humans yep. are male um, created male and female. Um, and we can talk about intersex too, maybe, maybe later. Cause that, that might be a question people have, but um, so that's sex, biological sex. Everybody yep. is, Either male or female, a very small percentage might actually be a blend of both. Um, gender, though, is you is a term now used to describe our psychological and or social response to biological sex. So, um, gender identity, and that so gender is broken down into three categories: uh, gender identity, gender expression, gender role. Gender identity has to do with your internal sense of who you are. Okay. Gender expression is how you express yourself as male or female through clothing, interests, mannerisms, so on. And gender role is kind of the um, societal expectation for men and women. So, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, men were expected to be, you know, workers and women, you know, yep. stay at home or whatever. Yeah. Those are expectations for males and females that's not intrinsic to the male and female nature on a biological level. That is a social expectation. So, um, so yeah, so the biggest, so if you want to boil it down, the the biggest one might even say philosophical or theological question is if a male or female experiences some incongruence between their sex and their gender, we'll say gender identity, their internal sense of who they are. 
then which one are they? Like, if they're biologically male and their internal sense of self is not male, then does that mean they are not male <laughs> or does their biology simply determine who they are um, and why? What, what if, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, here's my answer to that, but I'm yeah. going to push, push everybody and say, well, why? Like, why would you uh, say that? And that's, that's, that question is really what the whole books. Well, that's the foundational question in the book because everything flows from that. Like, yeah who we are in our core essence, that's who we should move to be um, that from a discipleship perspective, that, that is who we should seek to live out. That's who God has designed us to be. And we should move into that divine uh, human identity that's been determined by God. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of practical ramifications to that. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm going maybe too, too. No, 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 right no, no, no. That's really good. Well, I, I'm curious, you know, as we continue to use this word gender and talk about it, I wonder what you think the impact of so much of the teaching and the writing on quote unquote, biblical manhood and womanhood has been on this. I mean, I mean on what it means to be male and female in general, just in, in, in a traditional sense, but also when it comes to this conversation about the broader conversation around sexuality, is it positive? It, it, it feels very, uh, I don't know what the right word is. It feels very dangerous to, or dismissive when you label one particular thing biblical manhood and womanhood it just feels like you immediately dismiss everyone that's not that because if you don't fit within that then you are what unbiblical <laughs> like right, yeah. I, I would even say like one thing personally for me that has always been frustrating is like when I read Christian marriage books more often than not on certain things surrounding like communication every time a wife is described I'm much more closely fit the description of the way a wife communicates and my wife much more fits like the way that a husband communicates. Yeah. I've never appreciated that. Um, <laughs> especially when that's labeled like biblical manhood. And yeah, so, yeah. so what do you think the impact of that is on this conversation or maybe how is the church doing on the topic of gender and roles and expression in general? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. That whole chapter on gender stereotypes and how, both the so-called left and right are, um, I think they're in a very unhealthy way uh, embracing gender stereotypes. Um, so here's what I mean by that. I mean, you have male and female. We are biologically different. We're also very similar. I mean, in many ways yeah. too, um, the overlap between men and women, we have a common human experience. Um, but you know, there are biological differences that are just there. Now, um, and the Bible very much says there's male and female. Um, it celebrates sex differences. But when it comes to gender differences, those get a little more fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people is most of our stereotypes about what it means to be masculine or feminine, mm -hmm. most of that comes from culture, not the Bible. For instance, yeah. you know, um, King David you know, he's a manly man, right? He killed yeah. Goliath and cut off his head and right. he was a big warrior, but he also wrote poetry, played a harp and cried a lot. Cried like he so cries much. more than, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he, <laughs> and yet is, is, is David in sin because he wrote, wrote poetry? Is he in sin right. because he cried a little too much, you know? 
women, you have women that stay at home and make babies and that's perfectly mm -hmm. fine. And probably yeah. a lot of women might resonate with that. You also have women like, you know, Deborah who went out and won the battle when, you know, right. Barrett couldn't do it, you know, and Yael, her sidekick, you know, slammed a tent peg in the skull of a warrior and won the battle, right. you know? And right. does that mean she's not a woman? Does that mean she's now a man because she's acting in stereotypical masculine ways? So here, I mean, here's the way I explain it. Biologically, we probably the majority of males will naturally act in more stereotypically masculine ways, mm -hmm. but that's not demanded of every male. And it's not even true of every male. There's also, there's always going to be exceptions to the generality. Same thing with women. Uh, most mm -hmm. the majority of women might act in ways that would be deemed feminine um, by society, but that is not morally mandated in scripture. And, and neither is that the case in everybody's experience either. There's women yeah. who, you know, the, the classic is, you know, women are more emotional and intuitive right. and are more analytical and rational. And it's like, yeah, maybe 60, 40, 70, 30 or whatever, but gosh, if you're a, that's still very a big emotional, non-rational. Yeah. 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 There's going to be literally millions in each category that don't fit that. So, um, yeah, and this is where the, I think where the church has gone wrong is assuming a very culturally driven view of masculinity and femininity and then making it morally mandated. Yeah, it that's is good. profoundly problematic to make emotional men who write poetry and cry a lot, make them feel like they're not real men because they're not matching up to some cultural standard of masculinity. Yeah. And, but that really, all of that ties into the trans conversation as well. Yeah. And on, on the, it, it seems like we're hearing more and more about the trans experience and it's becoming a more commonplace subject. And so I'm just curious, do you think, is there an actual increase of people who are having this experience or has it become, it's becoming more acceptable, acceptable to be able to, to talk about it openly or what do you attribute the rise to? There's, there's been a massive increase. Yeah. It's not just, um, some people are like, you know, I'm not sure if it's become more popular, but it seems like it. And um, th that's not just anecdotal. That, that's statistically true. I mean, in the, in the United Kingdom, there's been a, um, according to one study, a 5,000% increase among wow. teenage females um, going to gender clinics and, and um, getting help because they're questioning their biological sex. And, you know, some people might say, and that's true of all Western countries too. There's been a skyrocket yeah. among teens identifying. And some people say, well, that's because, you know, culture is more open and they've always been there, but now they can, they feel the freedom to kind of come out and talk about their experience. Um, though, there's two problems with that. Number one, that wouldn't explain that percentage of increase. Maybe if it doubled, no tripled, way. quadrupled, yeah. but a 5,000% increase is unprecedented. And many liberal, very liberal psychologists say the same thing. This isn't just conservative yeah. saying, we're right. the good old days when no one was trans. Right. Like that's not right. all it's wrong. Um, but also in the past, gender dysphoria was something that was not exclusively, but largely an experience among biological males. Hmm. I don't know if it was a three to one, four to one male to female, but over the last 10 years, it's that 5,000% increase is among females. So there's hmm. been an, inver an inversion of the sex ratio in those who are wrestling with or questioning their their biological sex. And so that, that's where it's like, that doesn't explain if you say society is more open now, that doesn't explain the massive change in, in, um, 
in, in females um, coming out and identifying. So th there's, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of theories out there. The, the biggest question is maybe there's some role in society that's fostering or nurturing alternative gender identities. And I've, I've looked at, a, I mean, all that research and it does seem to be that there's like society is, is playing a role here. I'm not saying society is simply creating trans people or whatever, but sure. um, it certainly is playing a role. I mean, you look at a, teenagers with heavy, heavy online use, sometimes they're bathing themselves in, in certain, a certain ideology. Um, and there's also going back to the stereotypes. I mean, you know, one, one is a book that quotes a girl, a teenage girl who says there's, there's no such thing as tomboys anymore. <laughs> like, hmm. in other words, e e either you are a girly girl or people are like, you might be trans. It's like, well, wait a minute. Isn't that kind of in a roundabout way, just simply affirming these gender stereotypes? <laughs> like yeah. you can be a girl who likes short hair and plays, plays sports. That doesn't mean you're trans. It just means you're a girl who likes mm -hmm. to play sports and wear short hair. You know, that's not, yeah. Um, so yeah, but I mean, everything I've said, well, this whole interview is debated, but yeah, th that's a huge, huge volatile conversation, um, yeah. you know, exploring why there's such an increase in younger people identifying. Do you think any of it has to do with, I mean, I have not studied this in depth at all, so feel free to, I mean, I really want to know your opinion. Does any of it have to do potentially with just the, so you mentioned online social media use, all of that, but just the general fluidity with, with of of culture right now when it comes to sexuality that it's just become more normative and okay to not have to even take a take a stance on where you're at on anything just you can kind of be whatever i mean is that part of it that's yeah. just been more acceptable and it's cultivated that yeah i think that can definitely be part of it there was um there was a major study done by a brown university professor lisa Littman a couple of years ago again not a not a Christian Bunny Stretch, mm -hmm. um, but she interviewed, she surveyed over 200, 250 parents or something with kids that, teenagers that came out as trans kind of overnight, like out of nowhere. And she found a lot of common things among these kids. For one, almost, well, a good percentage were wrestling with all kinds of other mental health issues. Okay. Um, a good percentage, I think 60% were on the autism spectrum. A bunch of them were wrestling with anxiety, depression, suicidality, um, loneliness. Um, a lot of a higher percentage, a high percentage were like OCD, ADHD. Um, so there's that. But another thing that almost all of them had in common was heavy, heavy online use. I mean, hmm. I don't know what the average was, six to eight hours a day on like YouTube and Reddit. And they looked at the content of what they're looking at. It's all these like, yeah. very progressive kind of trans affirming perspectives that I mean, and perspectives not i mean like there's one you know where the person might say hey you know do you are do you feel uncomfortable with your body mm -hmm. do, you, do you sometimes are you are you kind of uncomfortable do you, you know to, to girls you know do, yeah. do you feel uncomfortable when guys are really kind of looking at you do you you know um do you do you kind of feel uncomfortable now that you have boobs you know and it's like yeah i don't what what d does your period make you uncomfortable you know maybe if, if you feel kind of uncomfortable, then maybe, I don't know, like, yeah, maybe you're trans. Have you explored it? And so it's like, what, what teenage girls, like, I love my period. It's awesome. Totally. My body yeah. totally not a big deal. You know, like that's, these are just, I'm normal. 40 years old and I feel uncomfortable in my body mainly because I gained like 20 pounds through COVID. 
but yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I don't, who, who feels comfortable in their body? Right. Right. And, and yeah. please hear me. I, I am not saying that is what ge- like diagnosable gender. No, no, I know. Like. Yeah. Um, yep. I'm talking about just this. Yeah. What you said, like this, this, this encouragement to really explore mm-hmm. whether you're actually male or female, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then, yeah, you combine the mental health condition of a lot of teenagers. I mean, they're wrestling with a lot of stuff and, and, oh, yeah. um, you know, to find, um, that you can be in some circles, um, depending on where you live or a lot of online circles, you come out as trans or bisexual or genderqueer and you can instantly receive a ton of affirmation yeah. and celebration for somebody who is lonely and, and maybe has a bad home life or bad yeah school life or maybe they're being bullied like if there's instant access to a community that's going to do nothing but affirm everything about you that's mm-hmm. that can be attractive you know sure and, and this is where i, I want to ask you know even if somebody's like oh the see that's you know that's terrible it's like well what are we doing as a church to create a community where people don't need to look for it elsewhere because people yeah. will look for belonging somewhere if the church yeah. isn't creating it then they'll they'll look elsewhere you know yeah I would, I would, this just made me think of this because I read it right before we got on for people who uh, have not read the article you wrote on your blog about uh, how the church needs to be more like a dive bar. That that's an exception. And it, cause it's about the, the article is about belonging. And I do think that that was such a powerful point huh. made in that article about um, one way that the church has to grow and has to be a place, if nothing else, that people are able to belong. So for what that's worth, man, I thought that article was really, really powerful. Oh, um, I, I, I get more good. F- I, I just randomly posted that and I got so many people that said that that, that was helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think it's such a, I mean, it was, it's, it's beautifully written. I think it was a, it's a powerful metaphor. Um, and it's true. You know, I just think that, I think that's one thing that, that really I'm sure resonates with people is that it's true. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about this one, one thing, you know, I, I hear people reference that take, maybe what I would call a more oppositional stance toward those in the transgender community are what they would refer to as the negative mental health effects of being transgender. Mm -hmm. So for instance, they reference like the suicide rate maybe amongst those who go through with gender reassignment surgery is astronomical. I read even this morning that uh, a huge percentage of trans teens at least report having contemplated, if not attempting suicide. And so sometimes you hear people point at that as the fruit of clearly going against God's plan for people. And so I, I have a, two questions for you in this. One, are, are the references true about the suicide rate or the attempt uh, mental health? It would seem as though a lot of that is accurate based on what we've already talked about. But then two, is it, is, it a fair, is it fair to point to the experience itself as the source or is the struggle more the result of the response of culture to trans individuals? And I would say yeah. specifically the culture in the church. Man, you're asking a great question. I've got a whole like appendix in the book on suicidality and the trans conversation. And, okay. you know, I really, it's such a sensitive topic, obviously. And so I, you know, I wanted to really be thorough and, and, Mm-hmm. my research. And what I found is it's the research is, is complicated. Um, so there's widely differing statistics on um, trans adults. Typically is this, the studies are done with adults. Um, yeah. Widely differing statistics on the percentage that 
attempt suicide. The, the one you see a lot is 41% mm-hmm. um, of, of adult trans-identified people have attempted, not committed, but attempted yeah. um, suicide. Um, that, that's about as high as it gets. The same group that did that study three years ago did another study, the same kind of a different population among trans people. And it was half that. It was like 20%, you know, and there's been some as low as 5%, 10%, whatever. And um, the one thing we have to understand about suicidality, and again, this is something that I just, I learned through this study is that mm-hmm. not, about 95% of people that commit suicide or attempt suicide had an unaddressed mental health issue. Um, and so it's, it's like, it's not simply being trans sure. that, increases your suicidality it's often often the mental health issues that are either let me say it like this and again this is gonna be controversial but either yeah. the mental health issues that might be causing the trans identity might yeah. be a result of the trans identity because i'm trans therefore people are you know hostile towards me and that's why i'm depressed you know right or maybe it's somehow intertwined you know maybe anxiety was there before the dysphoria flared up and, and it's hard to kind of unravel that. What we know though, is that the percentage of non-trans people with a mental health condition um, that commit suicide or sorry, attempt suicide is about the same as trans people on the whole. So um, it is really the, the mental health that we're wrestling with when it comes to suicidality. One of the things in this conversation that makes this, this, this part of the discussion difficult is suicidality, the high rates of suicide among trans-identified people um, has, has been weaponized by a yeah. good number of people. You know, like, you know, par- parents are sometimes told, you know, do you want a dead daughter or an alive son? Mm. Meaning, you know, yeah. your, your daughter is either going to kill herself or she needs a transition. Well, that's a extremely unloving, irresponsible piece of advice given to parents as if that's the only two options, transition or right. suicide. There is a well-known study. The, the most thorough study is a, a 2011 study from over 300 people in Sweden that had transitioned. And they found that the suicide rate among these adults is still 19 times higher um, compared to the general uh, population. Um, and the mental health issues were still very, very high as well. Um, so, um, you know, does transitioning alleviate, minimize, exacerbate suicidality? And depend, it depends on you know, what study you read. Yeah. But um, yeah, I just, I think, it, I, I do think it's, it's very troubling. And, and I, I would say psychologically irresponsible to, to mm-hmm. kind of weaponize suicidality. And when it comes to teenagers, you know, the rates are quite a bit lower than the adult population. Um, not that that, again, any, any, every, if it was 1%, then that's troubling, right? I mean, any, any, anybody who's at risk of suicide should be a concern for, for society and, and the church um, as a whole. I, I feel like yeah. I wandered off a little bit. Is there? No, 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 you're good. No, that's, I, no, that's good. I, I mean, I think, I think it's it's okay to wander because it is it's a very <laughs> so much of this is so complicated. And one thing I really appreciate about you is that you're you're willing to allow it to be complicated. I think that's mm-hmm. so much of the problem uh, when it comes to Christians' conversation in this is we want 
we want all of our theological categories to be clear and for there to be very, you know, black and white answers to everything. And the truth is just so much of life is extremely complicated. And I think we do a tremendous disservice to humanity and the human experience when we don't allow it to be complicated and just embrace the discomfort of, yeah, this is just complicated. It's not easy. Um, but, but so what, what advice would you give to, I know this is huge and, uh, reading your book is a good piece of advice, but to Christians and local churches in general, when it comes to, I don't know if we want to go specific to the transgender community or just to, uh, when it comes to sexuality in general, what's your best piece of advice to Christians and the local church in general? Yeah, I, I would say do a lot of listening and a lot of learning. So, um, with both the sexuality and the trans conversation, because they are very different. Um, mm-hmm. They can't, you know, there's, there's some overlap, but there's a lot of differences too. Um, with the trans conversation in particular, there's a lot of, there's a lot of education that, that needs to happen here because yeah. as we've seen, there's just understanding suicidality, understanding sex and gender, understanding gender dysphoria, understanding the diversity of trans, understand, we haven't even talked about the Bible. I mean, what does the Bible right. even say yeah. about this? What does it mean to be human? Can you be born with the brain of the opposite sex and, or the soul of the opposite sex? I mean, there's conceptually, there's a lot of, um, complex questions that aren't just, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I mean, th- these are right. questions that will ultimately have s- significant uh, discipleship implications. Um, so I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that's why I wrote the book, right. To, to, yep. to help get our arms around the concepts, but, um, so that's the learning side, but we, we also need to do a lot of listening, man. I mean, golly, like you, you, there is no replacement for sitting down and listening to somebody who's willing to share their story with you and, and have them describe their experience, have somebody who experiences severe gender dysphoria, like sit with them for a good hour and have them describe mm-hmm. what that's like. And it's, it's, it's agonizing just to, just to listen to it, just to yeah. hear what their experience is like. And um, that, you know, you just, uh, you said earlier, like you just don't approach these quote unquote issues the same when, when you sat with somebody in, in their experience and, and truly yeah. tried to understand. So yeah, a lot of listening, a lot of learning. And then, you know, I tell, especially Christian leaders, silence isn't an option. Yeah. Look, you, there's not a single, well, it, it, especially with younger people, the number one thing they want to talk about is sexuality and gender. They're, they're mm-hmm. begging for discipleship in this area. Um, the, the, a church that just stays silent is really quickly seen as a very tone deaf and irrelevant church. And we just do our, we do our people no service um, if, if we just fail to disciple them in this conversation you know i mean uh questions about sexuality and gender have become some of the most pressing ethical questions facing the church today so h- how mm-hmm. can we call ourselves faithful mentors and disciplers if we're not willing to disciple our people in some of the most pressing ethical questions that they're wrestling sure. with so it's good yeah. but o- o- only only <laughs> um silence isn't an option we need to we need to work through these but make sure we do a lot of listening and learning that's good yeah speak out. yeah you know, I have a friend who um, has two daughters, one of which, um, starting around the age of three or four, started to talk about how she wanted to be a boy and wished that she was a boy. Um, and 
thinks of herself as a boy. Even, even going so far as at night, she told me by the age of four, she was praying at night that Jesus, that she would wake up with a penis. Like she was that, like at four years, four or five years old. And, uh, you know, I, I had never heard a story like that until my friend shared it with me. And it's, and when you hear that, like it, it changed, because I do feel like with so many Christians that don't have any experience in this, it's just it, like, even, even the going back to like what used to be so common in, in a conversation about homosexuality, which is like, you just like, like people just wake up on a Tuesday and choose to, to, to be th- this way. And so that, was really altering to hear about like this, this young girl, I love you use the word agonizing. I think that that's such an appropriate word for it, but in a situation like this, I just wonder in closing what your advice is to parents um, that might be trying to love and to lead their kids through this experience. It's a great question. I have friends that have, have had similar experiences, both as parents towards their kids, but also the kids themselves who grow up Mm -hmm. in, um, yeah, that, that's, that's tough. I mean, I, I think, um, uh, Mark Yarhouse is a Christian psychologist who's done mm-hmm. a lot of work in this area. And he's got a book called understanding. I mean, he's got many books, but one's called understanding gender dysphoria. And okay. he has a good chapter, a couple chapters specifically on parenting kids who have this experience. So I would highly recommend that. And one of the things he says in that book, and I fully agree is, you, you want to avoid two extremes. Like if your son is having this kind of, you know, um, or within your case, it was, it was a girl who wants mm-hmm. to be a boy and, and really severe, like, this is like, you know, not just some flippant thing. Um, she's probably going to resonate with masculine kind of stereotypes, probably play with things that she sees boys playing with, maybe wear her hair short, baseball hat, mm-hmm. whatever. Like you don't want to, you don't want to try to like stop that. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. if you come on so hard and try to make her enjoy femininity, that that's typically going to backfire and not be helpful in the long run. And again, what is masculinity and femininity? Can, can girls not play with trucks and play in the mud? Right. You know? so, um, that, so you want to avoid kind of intervening and trying to stuff her in some stereotype. You also, I, I don't think it's also helpful to just, you know, do nothing, but just, you know, affirm everything about, well, what, I, let me back up. Like, okay, she's a girl wants you know, wants to be a boy. You, you don't want to just say, yes, you're a boy. And, and, right. you know, um, just steer her towards all things boy or whatever, like just being radical on the other side can, can also be confusing. I, I would say, um, be, be patient, pray a lot. Um, statistically, uh, six, anywhere from 61 to 88% of children who experience this gender dysphoria, 60 to 88%, um, it ends up going away after puberty. Hmm. Um, it, so there's still at least 20%, you know, that yeah. to where it doesn't. So there's no, I'm not making any false promises, but yeah. just because they are having this experience does not mean they always will. In fact, there's a, a good chance they, they won't. Um, uh, I, I would, um, and this comes from a, a um, another expert, uh, Leonard Sachs, who's done a lot of good work in this area too. 
um, he talks about parenting this kind of child and, and he says, but it'd be good to put them in social environments where narrow stereotypes aren't, aren't being reinforced. So if there's a youth group where it's like very, you know, boys are masculine and girls are feminine and there's boys and girls studies and everything's kind of like that, that that's probably going to be counterproductive, you know, um, maybe your daughter wants to play sports maybe, or your son maybe is experiencing this wants to take dance, you know, we'll put them in dance. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And maybe they're in an environment where there's other boys that like dance so they can. So, and here's my main point that you want to put them in an environment where they don't start to question their biological sex because these narrow stereotypes are kind of being reinforced all around them, especially since they're not going to resonate with those stereotypes. Yeah. I'm not a psychologist, so don't. I, <laughs> no, no, no. It's yeah. yeah, no, it's super helpful, man. I you've been super generous with your time, and um, I think this book's going to be very, very helpful. We've covered a lot of heavy subject matter, and so I just want I want to end with one very simple question. Well, it's probably not simple. I know you're a, a beer fan, so if you could only drink <laughs> one beer for the rest of your life, which oh. one would it be? That might be the hardest question I've asked you today. That is the most difficult question <laughs> anybody has ever asked me. I, I would say my, I really like Belgium triple ales, um, any kind of Belgium ale. Um, one of my favorite beers comes out of Grand Rapids called Dragon's Milk. Oh, <laughs> but nice. it's a bourbon barrel aged stout. It's, it's, it's about a 10 or 11%. It's, it's a slow sip. Sounds like a meal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a meal. It's a meal in a bottle. You don't want to, you don't want to drink couple of these on a hot day you'd probably pass yeah. out so so i don't know if i could do the rest of my life like that, <laughs> i'm a big fan of a nice hoppy ipa too i can, I right. can always i can always do that yeah what about you i'm curious now that you asked the question <laughs> i like i like hoppy ipas too i didn't used yeah. to i used to like this is this is embarrassing to admit i used i used to have to drink like light beer just couldn't handle it uh, i started drinking coffee black and then all of a sudden i could i i could start to drink like real beer so that that was yeah that's how I, I got into real beer that and drinking whiskey meat that that ruins light beer and pretty much all of your taste buds so <laughs> I like whiskey meat too yeah. Yeah. yeah well man I really appreciate your time and in all seriousness uh, you're a tremendous uh, tremendously necessary voice in the church today on this topic very very few that I'm aware of are doing are kind of holding the tension in the middle of like wanting to interact seriously with what the Bible says and being willing to allow this to be very complicated and, and human and relational. And so I think that's a tremendous gift to the church. And uh, I'm really excited about this new book. And thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on.